This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. nominations day i'm here for a special emmy reaction episode with joanna robinson hi katie and david canfield hi katie uh and before we jump into emmys i should say that at the end of the episode there is another can dispatch from richard uh he and i caught up this morning to talk about the french dispatch and other things so stay tuned for that but this is what we live for. We love the post-nominations uh, awards episode we can do. The Emmy nominations came out today. Uh, David, you and I have been kind of like fretting over these for weeks, <laughs> writing all these different stories about the narratives we saw coming. Uh, overall, good nominations, bad nominations? How'd they do? I decidedly mixed nominations. Um, <laughs> I, I good, feel good like answer. the Emily, Emily in Paris Best Comedy nomination is, is a troll. And de- designed to get us angry, but if you look beyond it, in uh, there are there's plenty to be very excited about. I think in general, they stumped for a few smaller shows in an exciting and perhaps relieving way. I was really happy to see Pose get kind of an epic farewell send off. It had its best performance uh, at the Emmys by far for its last season, with both of its leads nominated, including a really groundbreaking nomination for MJ Rodriguez. Um, and a lot of really popular stuff uh, got, got nominated, <laughs> unsurprisingly. The Mandalorian and WandaVision topping 20 nominations. Hamilton, which, depending on who you ask, is a TV movie or a play or a variety special, getting a boatload of acting nominations. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's a little all over the place. I'm still sort of sifting through it to, to, to extract the big narratives. <laughs> yeah. I mean, David, you wrote already about the Hamilton thing, which I do think if someone is, like, not paying attention ahead of time is going to be like, what in the world? How is, like, <laughs> Limo Miranda and Hamilton nominated against Paul Bettany and WandaVision? That doesn't really make any sense. And and your story kind of breaks down the, um, like, the kind of the rules that made it possible. But your overall thesis was just, like, a bunch of people watch Hamilton and TV is fractured. So something that everyone watches is just going to have a leg up. I think it's kind of the key to understanding these nominations overall, especially something like Emily in Paris, which we all watched it. I mean, it's a show (laughs) that has lasted. I mean, I I was shocked to see it just because it aired so long ago, let alone the backlash to its Golden Globe nomination, everything like that. But, you know, when you look at something like Hamilton, where, you know, if if I were a Television Academy voter, if I had any say, (laughs) I, I would just feel weird about voting for some of those performances They'd been Tony nominated, in some case winning. Renee Elise Goldsberry uh, particularly has won a Tony for that performance already, was not nominated for Girls Five Eva, but was nominated for the performance for which she has already been recognized plenty. Um, <laughs> deep breath. It, it's just, it's, 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 it's a situation where smaller things are going to have a harder time, especially with actors that you can't immediately visualize. These are, in a lot of cases, iconic performances, and I think that carried through pretty substantially. Um, Joanna, as our uh, chief sage of the Marvel shows, uh, WandaVision had a huge morning. Falcon and the Winter Soldier did had a less moderately huge morning. But did you buy that popularity theory for how WandaVision dominated, too? Kind of. Um, like I, I, I've been reading, of course, David's great coverage leading up to everything, devouring it all. And if everyone hasn't read them, they you should be following everything that David writes. But like he, he has been talking about this popularity creep, and um, you know, one thing that he's pointed out that I think is the main issue here is that so many of the big heavy hitter prestige shows were not 
eligible, they took the year off because of COVID, you know what I mean? And so like succession, I think you would see a huge succession domination in here. You would see some Better Call Saul, you would see some other things. And so in absence of that, Disney really did fill in a, va- a TV vacuum that that happened in this in this COVID year. Um, of course, the popularity creep has been happening for a while. Thrones dominating for so many years. Genre friendliness um, has been, you know, something creeping into the Emmys for uh, many years now. And, you know, as a genre lover, I I'm a fan of that because I think, I think WandaVision was a great television show. And I'm gl- what I'm glad is that it's not just sort of an, a blinkered across the board Marvel show love, because I think Falcon and the Winter Soldier was, had a lot of flaws. And so the fact that it only got like five nominations, I think, and WandaVision got a mountain of nominations at least, you know, means that it, people aren't just like blindly clicking Marvel on, on their nomination ballots. And I think Mandalorian also doing extremely well, you know, I can't argue with the technical nominations for the Mandalorian. Like those Disney plus shows, WandaVision and Mandalorian both are doing technical things, you know, that no other show can really match. And, um, that's, that's where Thrones picked up a lot of their hardware as well is in those technical categories. So, um, so yeah, I, I guess that that's my thinking on that. And, and since I mentioned the Mandalorian, I just have to, with all my heart, shout out Timothy Oliphant's guest actor <laughs> nomination for playing Cobb Vanth, the character that I loved on the, like my favorite thing that happened in the Mandalorian last season. Uh, <laughs> but if Tim gets an, an Emmy for the Mandalorian and not for justified, we're going to have to have a conversation. So there you go. <laughs> I love that they went for him and Carl Weathers over Mark Hamill, who like I had I did the predictions for that category, and I was like, "It's Luke Skywalker. He showed up for two minutes. They're going to nominate him." But they uh, they went for the meat instead. That might be a technical. I mean, they might have to get Disney might have to get a little too honest about how much or how little Mark Hamill was actually involved in that performance uh, <laughs> if they wanted to try to get him an Emmy, and I don't think they want to play in that pool. So while we're talking about the Mandalorian, though, can I point out that it's crazy that Rosario Dawson didn't make it in in the guest actress category? I thought that would have been a slam dunk given how much people like the Mandalorian, but apparently they like The Handmaid's Tale more because it got two uh, guest actress nominations among its like eight acting nominations. Yes, it completely dominated the acting categories. It's, it's, it's interesting, though, to Joanna's point, I think in a case of a show, of those shows that you mentioned, not nominating Mark Hamill is a good example of how they are watching these shows. And within that, there is a certain level of, like, quality control in terms of who they're nominating and why. I think sometimes we just think of Emmy voters automatically name-checking people. I expected Julie Louis-Dreyfus to be nominated for Falcon and Winter Soldier. She was not, which I think makes sense. And I love Julie Louis-Dreyfus. So it's like once that barrier to entry is broken, I think you see some actually discerning choices being made, which is uh, a relief. In other cases, not, which we can get into later. I mean, but it is is wild that Don Cheadle is nominated for Falcon and Winter Soldier. That is wild. Um, um, but uh, I want to say that uh, th- this is another thing that I learned. I learned so much from reading David's coverage is like uh, the, the big Handmaid's Tale domination. I mean, I'm curious what you think at this point, David, but like one reason being the absence of those other prestige shows. And so they want to like not just nominate <laughs> SNL, Hamilton, some Marvel shows and like Mayor of Easttown. They want, they want some of that old prestige feeling, which, you know, The Handmaid's Tale might give them. Is that is that your still your thought, David? It is. I think it filled such an important hole um, among this year's drama contenders, which was a really, I don't love saying weak field, but it just, with so many major contenders out of the way, it really was primed to come back. Those actors, they give great performances on that show. They're well-known. A lot of them had been nominated before, not all of them. Um, there were a couple newbies popping up, especially in the male actor category. And it's also a case of the show had gotten more popular this year. Hulu made a big deal about how many more people were watching it. I think I had noticed a lot more talk about this season, whether good or bad. It seemed like there was a kind of resurgence in it being in the conversation. Um, which probably goes back to just the general lack of prestige drama series having aired in the past year. Um, so I think in some ways it's voters reflecting um, broader just TV viewing habits and what we were watching and paying attention to. Um, it's also interesting because alongside that you have something like Lovecraft Country, which 
to my mind, dramatically overperformed for being a canceled show. Granted, HBO canceled it immediately after voting concluded, but it's another show that was um, a pretty well-received prestige drama series that did play with genre and all that, but it, it definitely was firmly in that awards lane, um, and it really held up despite airing last year, um, not being too widely seen. Um, just to, to have both of its leads nominated alone was a, a big a nice lift for that show for whatever it means at this point. I think it got five acting nominations, which is a lot, like kind of all the significant people we thought we'd get in there. As anyone listening to the show knows, I have to shout out Jonathan Majors uh, for his well-deserved nomination, but like yes. it is wild. Like Misha Green just signed an overall deal with Apple. So hopefully <laughs> she's having like a really good day, like drinking <laughs> many cocktails, celebrating her new deal and just being like, well, 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 uh, look at my canceled show now. Toast of the town. So yeah, I mean, I think Looking at that supporting actor and drama series, I, I zoomed over there after you mentioned all the Handmaid's Tale actors nominated in that category, which is wild. It is a wild little category, but Michael K. Williams being in there is really interesting. I mean, I don't know if we think it's just going to go to Tobias Menzies because there's going to be a massive crown sweep or what's going to happen. But, you know, I think I think there were some great, great love, Lovecraft Country performances in a show that was like somewhat erratic plot-wise sometimes for me, but the performances always felt really, really sure. So I'm glad to see them. Uh, well, Misha Green, I should say, did get a writing nomination for Lovecraft Crunchy, so hopefully she's having many different kinds of a great day. Cheers to Misha. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you guys about The Boys while we're talking about genre shows in the drama category? I think it's so fun. Like, last year, The Mandalorian popping up, we were like, oh, hey, the Emmys pay attention to sci-fi, which is funny, because, like, Game of Thrones dominated forever. Um, but The Boys was kind of my version of that surprise, even though I know lots of people who love it. Like, it is, like, a big Big old violent comic book show, and, uh, and it made it into the top category. I, I was also surprised by that. Did you see that coming, David? I think that last drama spot, there were a lot of shows getting brought up, and there was uh, some conversation around it. I certainly, I think I had brought it up as one of the main alternates uh, in our predictions post, and I, I think it really comes down to the might of Amazon in a lot of cases, which marketed that show really smartly and aggressively. It didn't have another um, drama player. And both that and the Underground Railroad, I think, barely squeaked into their respective program categories, but squeak in they did. You know, they they were probably among the least nominated of those program nominees, but um, the fact that it, it was able to get in is both a testament to Amazon's marketing and, and the fact that, as Joanna said earlier, like, the genre changes in the drama category particularly have been showing up for a while now, and I think this year it was most pronounced. Even even with something like Lovecraft Country, it's a very genre-heavy show. Oh, absolutely. There's, you know, Cthulhu's and stuff. But um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the boys, I mean, everyone I know watched The Boys. I mean, it was a hugely, hugely right. popular show. So, that, you know, that's just true. I still just was not thinking of it in the context of Emmys. It totally blindsided me. So, um, you know. I was thinking that they would stump for Falcon and Winter Soldier over that, if only because I, I looked at Falcon in a similar position to how The Mandalorian was last year um, when it when it surprised. But clearly another very popular, not seemingly <laughs> Emmy-ish show um, swooped right in. Um, while we're talking about Amazon, I want to dip over into the limited series thing and Small Axe just really mm -hmm. kind of didn't make it this time. and. I, you know, I think we've we talked for almost a year now about how it's incredibly confusing about whether or not you should consider it as a movie or television. And it was more eligible for the Emmys than it was for any of the, the film awards, but it still kind of got shut out. I don't, I guess I don't blame voters for not being willing to, willing to go through it, but it's a lot of missed opportunities in there. There's some great performances in that series. I think they should have just marketed it as a, as a limited series to begin with. And I wish, you know, like with all due respect to, you know, the wishes of the filmmaker, like I, I just think that the category confusion or the, or, or the, where do we put this confusion? I mean, I know the lines are blurring between film and television more and more every day. Uh, and I should not be stiff about it, but I just think people had a hard time holding on to it in a way that I don't think they would have. I mean, honestly, and once again, this might seem anti-artist and I hope that that's not the case, but like if, if I were in charge of distributing that show, uh, or whatever you want to call it, I would have put it out in, because they, they, the run times were longer than an hour, weren't they? They were all like... Some of them were and some yeah. of them weren't. I would have like... I might have divvied it up in episodes and made it just like a really straightforward miniseries. And once again, I hope that 
does not sound like blasphemy uh, artistically. <laughs> I, li- I like knowing that Steve McQueen could not possibly care less about this. I, I guess like so. awards are not That's why Steve true. McQueen does it, but maybe John Boyega cares, and he should because he's great on his uh, episode of Small Axe, if you want to call it an episode. Installment. Installment. <laughs> do you, um, you want to pivot to the comedy category, which we haven't talked as much about, um, which you know was as dominated maybe by even more by Ted Lasso than we thought. It's got like... Seven acting nominations, include, including four in supporting actor, which is, I don't know what in the world they're going to do about voting for those. Um, but anything else stand out for you guys in comedy? I'm really thrilled to see like Brendan Hunt in there, Nick Muhammad. Like this, that's great. That's so exciting. Like it is, it is an ensemble show as much as like Jason Sudeikis is probably a lock to win. And Ted Lasso is probably a lock to win. Like this is very much an ensemble show. So I'm glad to see a spread of love there. It reminds me of like, the Shit's Creek domination, right? Where it's just like, mm-hmm. here's a thing. And like Hacks got some love and, you know, there's some other love spread around for some other great shows, The Flight Attendant. But like this really just was, once again, maybe because of some COVID absences of other things, the Ted Lasso year. In a year where we needed that like gentle cup of tea that Ted Lasso <laughs> would have hated because he hates tea. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think, David? I, I think that that's dead on. I mean... It felt like every comedy series nominee, except for Ted Lasso and I think Hacks and the Flight Attendant, which did quite well. Um, also, they just kind of found their way in. Like Blackish has five nominations; it hadn't been nominated in a few years, but with all of last year's nominees, with the exception of the Kaminsky Method not being eligible, it found its way back in. Cobra Kai um, oh, yeah. was <laughs> like Netflix had Emily in Paris and Cobra Kai nominated, which is pretty impressive given that they already had Kaminsky Method also in there Um, and the the other big contender they had beyond Kaminsky was Master of None which was totally snubbed so I think I don't think that went the way Netflix expected though I don't think that they're mad about it Um, (laughs) and and Pen15 which is you know the probably the underwatched critical darling of the group which just barely got in with three total nominations Hacks did really well though it got 15 nominations overall um Hannah Einbinder getting into supporting actress, which was great to see. My favorite, uh, my my personal claim to fame this morning is that I predicted Jane Addams for guest actress nice. for that show, nice. um, which just felt like the exact kind of career acknowledgement that that category is selectively made for. Um, she gets a nice little showcase at the end as as Hannah's mother. And, I don't think ge- anyone predicted Carl Clemens Hopkins, who's um, plays uh, Gene Smart's assistant. That was a cool nomination. Yeah. I think that they really, that show is coming on quite strong. And I would not be surprised if it maybe won writing or directing where Ted Lasso is kind of overrepresented. <laughs> like it has oh, multiple yeah. nominations there. And, and I don't know that they necessarily have an, a standout episode. So if you see those split and given how strong Hex came on, I could see a, some surprises there. Right. Especially because like the Hex pilot is in there. And I think that episode is so strong. Uh, in the writing yeah. category. Um, and and the written by is like the three creators, like the, you know, Lucia Agnello and Paul Downs and Jen Satsky, who have been like on the circuit, the award circuit, you know, with all, with all due respect to them. So if, if yes, you know, they have. if they took home hardware for that, um, you know, that would be really well-deserved because they've been working for it. So, yeah. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
while we're talking about the writing in the comedy series, that is the one place that Girls 5 ever got nominated. So they did watch it, which makes me even more furious of how badly they snubbed it, including in the song category. I like I haven't I watched Bo Burnham's thing. Oh, the song category. That's it's, that's it, that's a crime. Like, I haven't watched Bo Burnham's thing. His song might be great. It might be the deserved winner. But the fact that they couldn't make room for four stars in there is infuriating. I think in some cases with these nominations, they're so maddening because it's like you are made to honor like the craft of the Underground Railroad, which only got five total nominations, which feels like a complete missed opportunity. Or like Steve McQueen not nominated for directing small acts is baffling to me, even if you don't nominate the show. And then you go to the song category, which is like, this is where Girls Five Eva is made to be embraced, if no, if nowhere else, and yet it was not. So yeah. I, I get frustrated at those selective snubs where they feel like so obvious, and yet clearly voters just weren't weren't on that wavelength. I mean, Peacock got two nominations, the Girls Five Eva and then writing for the Amber Ruffin show, which is just really not great um and i mm-hmm. i hope that with more time um they can do better because i think a lot of these shows are more deserving but clearly they were not on the radar enough yet well i'm i'm having trouble finding the nominees otherwise in the song category what what else is nominated was it is it all bo burnham stuff no one bo burnham one song from the boys called never truly vanish uh, a song from the queen's gambit called i can't remember love a song from something called the soundtrack of our lives with mark shaman you know who's going to die mark shaman uh i want uh agatha all along which is you know oh, that's that, that's in there and then that's uh, and yeah. then crimson love from zoe's extraordinary playlist oh they did give zoe something okay. yeah um, um, well, and yeah. Anna, Anna Bernadette Peters nomination. Actually, I'm just going to say this. Bernadette Peters is great on Zoe's Infinite Playlist, so, uh, or Extraordinary Playlist, sorry. Um, she, she was really good in her, in her appearances, so I'm not mad about Bernadette Peters getting a nomination was, there. I didn't know she was on it. I didn't know you watched it. I'm learning so much right <laughs> I now. watched all of it and, because, like, they, they do things like have Bernadette Peters show up and sing, like, three songs in an episode. I'm not... I, you think I'm not yeah. going to watch that? Oh, come on. It can be, it can be quite charming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an ups and downs show, but like I'm Peter Gallagher singing Billy Joel. I cry a lot of tears, <laughs> you know, like what do you, what do you gotta do? Um, the Bo Burnham of it all, well, the Bo Burnham of it all leads me to Hamilton, right? Because we're going to talk about Hamilton obviously right now, but like, I, I'm wondering, I'm still feel firm that Bo Burnham is going to take home something for inside. And, uh, and I'm wondering if maybe Hamilton, the Hamilton backlash to these nominations means he will, or if Hamilton will just scoop it up easily. What are you guys thinking? I just don't know how you can call it so many things and give it trophies in those different categories. So Hamilton. Yeah. So I'm inclined to agree. I think variety special, it's just such a grab bag. And if you have its actors competing as TV movie actors, um, I'm hoping that there's some sort of skepticism there. See, I think that all those nominations mean there isn't. And like, I think the Bobo thing is us (laughs) wanting the Emmy because the Emmys, their taste is getting better. I think, we all know that the Academy that would just like give Frazier awards every single year no longer exists. But I do think there's some level of being like, (laughs) no, we love Frazier. Maybe we love Frazier. One fewer Emmy. Okay, fine. Modern family. Sure. Yes. Okay. There, there you go. go. There you go. But yeah, I, I mean, I do think you're going to see that Hamilton domination because they love Hamilton and the people of Hamilton and the Hamilton backlash. I guess it's already been here for a while. Maybe it will spread, but uh, nobody cares because that that show's already made so much money and will make money for the rest of time. I mean, some of the nominations for Hamilton truly feel like, oh, he's everywhere right now, like Anthony Ramos. So let's nominate him here when he was also up for doing incredible work on the season of Entreatment, um, but yeah. was not nominated for that because four Handmaid's Tale actors apparently were better. I'm no glad comment. that um, <laughs> um, Uzo got nominated for Entreatment. Me too. Though. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. She, she's incredible on that show and in like every single frame of a long season. You know what I mean? Like, she's incredible. I mean, yeah. Very, very well deserved. And I think probably that was a little bit shakier than we thought, given, like, I don't think a lot of voters watch the show. Yeah. I think it was truly the power of Uzo um, coming through. And she got in over Sarah Paulson, which is nice to see. Yeah. Ra- well, the Ratchet get nominated for Sophia Okanedo, I think. So another yes. Netflix uh, sneaking in there. Um, I'm still looking at the comedy categories. I don't know how the Ted Lasso boys are going to shake out. Like, I guess Brett Goldstein gets the edge in that crew. But I'm also looking at, like, Keenan Thompson and Bowen Bo Yang showing up there for SNL. Like, I love seeing Bowen Yang get an Emmy oh. nomination this year. Big so time. Great. Big time. Nominated for the iceberg from the Titanic, if nothing else. <laughs> 
so good. So, so good. How do we feel about how the flight attendant did? Hacks definitely overshadowed it, I think, yeah. but it still did well. Um, I think in supporting actress, you saw um, Rosie Perez break through, but they were hoping for more, a couple more, like Zosia Mamet, um, make it through. They did not. Or um, um, uh, Michael Hussman, how would you say yeah, his name? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and <laughs> I, uh, I was surprised not to see him in there. I was too. Interesting. Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was surprised not to see Zosia, for sure. Um, yeah, uh, it's been an interesting, it's an interesting morning, guys, in Emmy Town. <laughs> I'm having, there's a lot, there's a lot that I'm really excited about. A.D. Bryant for Shrill makes you really, really happy. Double nominee, yeah, A.D. Bryant. That, love that for A.D. And, and like, speaking of SNL, there's a lot of uh, longtime great performers who I don't think it's been confirmed, confirmed, but we are very, very sure are leaving the show. Like Kate McKinnon, Cecily Strong, A.D. Bryant, and maybe Keenan because he has his own show now based on their sort of like tearful demeanor and positioning in the, in the finale. And so like they obviously can't honor all of them. I would love to see a Cecily strong win for, I was SNL. about to say that that's yeah. what I'm really pulling for. Yeah. Cause Kate has her, her statues for SNL and like Cecily has been such an underrated, incredible performer and her farewell performance on weekend update is one of my favorite things <laughs> I've ever, I think it's the, uh, my second favorite ever goodbye on SNL and just one of my favorite things I've ever seen on that show so second to second to which goodbye to uh i think it was seth meyers it was either seth meyers or bill Hader when they did like the big stefan wedding uh thing on weekend oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i think yeah that's a good one that was a that was a top tier but but her splashing around in a vat of wine singing (laughs) (laughs) for sinatra is just incredible stuff she's always been great and always been underrated i think on that show so i would i would love to see that for her can we talk about Alec Baldwin getting a guest actor nomination for SNL, despite the wishes of everyone on the planet, and probably also Alec Baldwin, who says he's going to stop playing the character? Ugh. It was him or Jim Carrey, so they had to pick I one. Guess, I guess that's true. <laughs> um, I want to go into the limited series a little bit. We talked a little bit about WandaVision, Mary Town stuff, and I just wanted to throw my cards on the line. I think with three supporting actors nominated for Hamilton, Evan Peters is going to win for Mayor of Town. I'm thrilled. My, my fondest wish. I think he's too. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Like, you know I'm thrilled. Um, I, I, I think they are too. My wish about this Evan Peters narrative, because I think he's so extraordinarily talented, is that he does more things like this. And as much as I have, like, some of the things that he's done in the Ryan Murphy verse, I just would like to see him spread his wings a bit more and do more, like, Mary Town style stuff. Because I think he, like, I think he... He, you know, as he said in a million interviews, including stuff, you know, he said on this very podcast or sorry, my podcast actually still watching like <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> they blur sometimes, um, you know, that, that he, like, he was, he didn't think that he could do it. And like, he just really did it, I think. And I, I, I would be so happy for him to win. So, yeah. It's a weird category too, because going into this morning, the two front runners seem to be John Boyega and Bill Camp. Yeah, clearly as part of the small act snub, but I was shocked Bill Camp didn't make it in, given that he was like a best actor nominee, a SAG, which has a lot of follow, uh, a lot of overlap with Emmy voters. So I think the lane is cleared for Evan Peters, and it's probably now the cleanest category to predict among the limited races, because I just feel like the mayor um, versus Queen's Gambit duel is, is not been cleared up by these nominations. And I think WandaVision is also stronger in some places than people are giving it credit WandaVision for. WandaVision got the most of any of the limited series. Mm-hmm. I feel like Katherine Hahn is the runaway favorite for supporting, right? There's there's love for Julian Nicholson. Um, yeah. But I think Gene Smart being nominated there too and Emmy's history of splitting could could work against her. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think Katherine Hahn is... But I'm honestly more sure of Evan Peters there than I am of Katherine Hahn. Does... Gene Smart feel like a lock for the other category she's nominated in, lead actress. For lead, I, I think yeah. so. So if if she's gonna take that category, yeah, I mean, I I would say Catherine Hahn. But my real question is Paul Bettany. That's a question I have. Ooh. Yeah, that's you know? that's that's a that's a tricky one. That's a. That's I think a, he might actually be the front runner right now. I think he might do it. 
You know what I mean? Like the undoing didn't get a lot of love elsewhere. So, you know, that works against you, Grant. Halston didn't see a lot of love elsewhere. As I said, it's going to come. And I think not just maybe Hamilton backlash, but Hamilton canceling each other out because Leslie Adam Jr. won the Tony uh, over Lin-Manuel Miranda for Hamilton at the Tonys, but like Lynn had picked up so much other hardware for Hamilton. But in this case, it's like, this is the opportunity to honor Lynn. And this is the opportunity to honor Leslie Odom Jr. And I can just see them dueling it out, canceling each other out. And Paul Bettany gets an Emmy for playing an Android. I love it. (laughs) Did they both get nominated at the SAG awards? I'm trying to look this up real quick. No, only David Diggs got nominated for Hamilton. Yeah. And at the golden globes, it was only Lynn. The Emmys went crazier for Hamilton than any other voting body, including the Tonys. Jonathan Groff nominated for Hamilton. (laughs) Including the Tonys. Jonathan Groff is wonderful in Hamilton. I don't think I would have given him a nomination for it six years after the fact. No. Justice justice for Oak and Justice for Jasmine Cephas Jones, who are like, when like everyone else gets nominated and like, you know, it's like. (laughs) I know. It's, It's really wild. Um, I mean, we'll have lots of time to talk about what we think is going to win, even though we obviously can't help ourselves. But uh, any any other closing thoughts? Uh, Justice for Kathleen Turner and Kaminsky Method. Can't believe that Paul Reiser got nominated and she didn't. Um, well, we haven't talked about The Crown, which I think is going to. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Going to do some some big business, um, though I couldn't tell you exactly where. But like it cleaned up at the Globes as well. So I think, you know. Although I did want to ask you guys if the overperformance of The Handmaid's Tale maybe should make us nervous about The Crown. Like, it is a previous winner in this category, and The Crown is not. I'm not too worried about it. I think especially given that The Crown, you could even argue The Crown overperformed. I mean, it has the most nominations of any show. We went in thinking it was one of the biggest players this season, and it, it held that up. But... They really seem to, they're still watching The Handmaid's Tale. That much is clear. So <laughs> I, I don't I don't know what that means for its chances with wins, but like maybe Elizabeth Moss has a shot with Emma and Olivia, you know, both yeah. there. Although I think Emma's still such a clear, has such a clear lane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the crown overall could completely sweep. I would like to see... Um, them get a little bit more creative and supporting actor. Um, but Tobias Menzies could be a default choice, especially since he doesn't have any intra-show competition. Um, and then I think Julian Anderson's winning supporting actress. I think Josh O'Connor's winning best actor. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Could I be do, complete. Uh, yeah. I do think it's going to be a, a, what, a quintuple crown or whatever you would call it. <laughs> if it was the big five. Um, but, Triple crown plus two. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and like, there's a lot of other talent in that supporting actor category. And The Crown is not Tobias Menzies' greatest work, I think. But he has been really great in a lot of things for a while. Like, I w- yeah. he was so good in Outlander, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a show that I have really mixed feelings about. But Tobias Menzies was always really great on that show. Great on Thrones. Great on, um, great in that, anyway. He's, he's, like, whenever he shows up, he does, like, really solid work. So, again, this this would be more of, like, a you're always great when you uh, appear award more so than just like honoring Philip uh, in the crown. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. See, I'm going to be pulling for uh, Giancarlo Esposito who never won an Emmy for playing Gus Spring. Hasn't yet won an Emmy. Yeah. Still could. <laughs> That's true. I, I've lost track on how Better Call Saul is still out there and actively in play, but uh, has yet to win an Emmy for playing Gus Fring, who's really great on The Mandalorian, uh, was nominated in the guest category last year, but got both supporting. I feel like, I think he's my horse back. Sure. I, I wouldn't be mad about it at all, at all. Giancarlo is like, similarly, just someone who is, shows up and is always great. Love to see a nomination for McKenna Grace, who has played the younger version of every single actress known to man in Hollywood. <laughs> that to me was the ultimate, they watched The Handmaid's yeah. Tale <laughs> nomination. Like, you don't nominate McKenna Grace for that show if you didn't watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea of Claire Foy swooping in to win a guest uh, statue for the role she won a, a lead statue for. I'm, I'm sure that has mm-hmm. not happened very many times. That would be funny. Did, did Viola Davis do it for How to Get Away with Murder? I don't remember how far that went, but she got, I think she got a guest acting nomination when they did the crossover episode. For, oh, Scandal. I totally missed that. I'm going to look that up on IMDb right now. That, that is a, that is an Emmy's trivia that I, uh, I we w- should find out. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I would love to also just shout out I May Destroy You. Um, yes. 
making it through. Yes. I think we were all a little worried for it, and it did really well. Michaela Cole has three nominations for herself, nicely scooped up. Uh, really, like, got a supporting actor nomination that felt a bit out of nowhere. Um, just, and I think got two directing nominations, which is really exciting. So, including really, one from Michaela Cole, which is great. Yeah, I would, so it did yeah. really well. Uh, even if she's may not beat Anya Taylor Joy and Kate Winslet, like that's a really, really tough category. I really hope she picks something up for the creative work that she's done on that show. I mean, as as we've talked about many times on the show, like its it snubs elsewhere is is one of the biggest crimes uh, in TV this last year. Can can I? Do you have your Viola Davis? Yes, set? yes, she was nominated but did not win uh, for okay. her guest appearance on Scandal. Therefore, I can. <laughs> Outdo her. Oh, no. Um, Variety talk series I want to talk about, not just because I got my Conan prediction right, but my question is, like, how far does that Conan inclusion go? Because the reason Mm -hmm. that I bet on it um, was because, you know, Conan recently ended his run and there was just all this recent wave of nostalgia and honoring Conan for, like, everything. I thought it was, like, perfectly timed, maybe intentionally timed, for when they decided to hang up uh, Conan and we had all these celebrities coming out of the woodwork talking about how much they loved appearing on Conan, uh, you know, on his various homes over the years. He doesn't have... I don't think he ever, like, he has a couple Emmys, but I don't think he ever won one in this category. He'd um, never been nominated in this category. And so I think, you know, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver has won, like, the last, like, whatever, one million years, um, I think, in a row. And so, and as much as, and as great as that show did in the pandemic times, I think this might be, I mean, I don't know. Is this a Conan year? What do you guys think? That'd be fun. That would be fun. I... I, I sense that John Oliver fatigue is finally settling in. Um, I don't know if Coden's the one to take that mantle this year, but I wouldn't be mad at it. I mean, I just don't see anyone like Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and Trevor Noah always all do great work all the time. But I don't think any one of them like particularly stepped out in a big enough way this year that yeah. if they decide to not go with John Oliver, there's an obvious second choice, maybe Colbert. But like, um, I think I think maybe that that. Conan nostalgia might might come through. I don't know. We'll see. Um, well, guys, we'll be talking about the Emmy nominations a lot. Hopefully, we'll get to talk to some of these nominees. We've already, we've talked to a lot a lot of people who've been on the show got nominated today. Uh, Jonathan Majors, who we talk about all the time, Hannah Einbinder. Uh, who else have we talked to this Brad past Goldstein. We talked to Brad Goldstein. Uh, we talked to Giancarlo Esposito, I think maybe for the last season of The Mandalorian. Um, so there's lots you can catch up on, um, and we'll keep talking about it. So let's go venture across the ocean then and talk to Richard about his experience at Cannes. Well, hello, Richard. Thank you for for telegraphing back in whatever old-timey Wes Anderson-worthy uh, method of communication we're using right now. Uh, it's, it's good to hear your voice again. Yeah, I'm talking into my phone and talking to you on a laptop. It's really, it's really, it's really French. <laughs> There's a rotary phone somewhere nearby, though, just to uh, complete the image. Yes, but the doorbell in my apartment does make a very satisfyingly old-timey sound, so we have that at least. See, there you go. That's what you, that's what you go to Europe for. Well, we're talking um, the day after the premiere of The French Dispatch, which I think uh, we knew way ahead of time was going to be like the big ticket title to look out for. It's got the most stars. It's got Wes Anderson in terms of Oscar buzz. It's kind of the the one to watch for. Um, and as we're talking, I haven't read your review yet, but uh, I hear that it did not go over great for you. <laughs> no, uh, I really didn't like it. I, I think that part of the problem is me in that, like, somewhere post life aquatic, I just started to lose the thread with Wes Anderson. Oh, wow. That's you know, a while I, ago. Yeah. Like, I liked Moonrise Kingdom okay, but, like, I Grand Budapest Hotel bothered me and the animated films I don't love. Like, and I think that the French Dispatch is really sort of a culmination of all of the Wes Anderson things that I don't like. Mm. Um, so if you do like the hit, like his, um, the, the way he makes his actors act, the kind of ornateness, slight pretension of his writing, you might love the French dispatch. I mean, it definitely has plenty of fans here in Cannes. It got, it's gotten good reviews, but I've talked to just as many people who feel the way I do, where it's just kind of like rolling your eyes being like, all right, dude, like <laughs> you want to make a movie only for yourself about how smart you are. Fine. <laughs> but like, I don't have to like it. <laughs> I feel like the general takeaway has been like it is one of his like more beautiful but least emotionally involving movies, which to me and I think to a lot of people is just like, oh, boy, because that's like that's a problem with even the best Wes Anderson is the lack of emotional involvement. 
Yeah. I mean, something I say in my review is that like, you know, because the, it, it's primarily broken up into three sort of short stories um, and each one like has little moments of poignancy or meaning. And you're like, oh, you kind of lean forward and you're like, OK, here we go. Here is that 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 moment where I'm really going to connect with this film. But then, you know, his pacing picks up again. It's a really fast movie. Um, and you just got kind of lost in. I mean, I honestly for a couple of the story that I didn't really couldn't even really tell what they were about. Um, it's just so scattered and it takes these digressions and then returns to the main story. And you're like, wait, where, where did we just go? And it's Hmm. so any, any chance that you would have to really kind of groove with it on something more than just an aesthetic level. Um, he kind of doesn't really give you that opportunity except for a few times. Well, that's kind of the problem with an anthology because it's it's structured as three stories kind of within this frame narrative um, with with this magazine in France. Like, and it's anthologies always have this problem where you like can kind of just get into it. and It's like, and on to the next thing. Goodbye. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there's the, the the middle story is one, the one with Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet. And that has things like that. And then it just kind of has this abrupt ending that sort of, you know, you're like, uh, oh, and then it's on to the next thing, which is this kind of crazy caper with uh, animated sequences and stuff. And and again, that moment, you know, there, there's a Jeffrey Wright's in that one. And he has a kind of lovely little monologue about what it is to live in another country, being a foreigner. And and the movie hangs on it for a second. But then, yeah, then it just kind of ends. And you're like, I don't know really why he Anderson and this seems so allergic to taking his time and, and really considering this world he's built, you know, I mean, there's so much in it. And I felt this way about Grand Budapest too. He built this elaborate thing and it's like, well, why don't you let us kind of like actually explore it and like mm. savor it. And, 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 uh, you know, he just kind of wants to throw every single idea he's had in the last however many years at the screen. And it just, and maybe it's satisfying to him. But for me, I was just like, I don't really know what's even being said here. Yeah, I liked Grand Budapest a lot, and I think a lot of people will be thinking of that as a model since it premiered at Cannes. It was, right? I guess it premiered. It was at least a spring release. Um, it, yeah, yeah. I think it was maybe at Berlin. Yeah. So, you know, thinking of that as like a Wes Anderson movie coming earlier in the year, like, can it maintain its its momentum over the season to come? But it does feel like the responses of this are considerably more mixed than they were for Grand Budapest. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the kind of film where, like, people who love it will love it. People who don't like it will really not like it. I I, I can't see a ton of middle ground of, oh, it was okay, mm-hmm. you know. Um, before I let you talk about something that you really did like, anything performance-wise of note? Like, I think Timothy Chalamet in The World of Wes Anderson is really intriguing to me. It sounds like he and Francis McDormand are good together, even if they're, like, you know, their story, like you said, ends in a kind of unsatisfying way. Anyone else stand out? Um, yeah, McDormand's good. She really can do the Wes Anderson style of acting while also still being Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. I think Chalamet being a young actor, being a sort of like, you know, he's still got that theater kid in him. He's clearly so eager to kind of please Anderson and, and, and sort of ape the tone of other performances in other films that it's just a little bit like, oh, OK, he's doing the Wes Anderson thing. And it kind of throws you out of the movie a bit. Mm. You know, Jeffrey Wright is playing a sort of James Baldwin-esque figure that um, I think Anderson kind of sort of denudes of the real power of Baldwin and kind of strips some agency from him in some, in a weird way. Uh, so that's frustrating, but the performance itself is good. And, you know, that section of the film, because largely these stories are narrated usually by the sort of author who is supposed to have written them. So Tilda Swinton plays one of the authors, McDormand plays one of the authors and Jeffrey Wright plays one of the authors or the, you know, the writers for this magazine. Um, so he has to talk a lot and it's really, really intricate um, language. And, you know, Jeffrey Wright, a, stellar theater star like you know like he he really like nails it um but you know for the most part everyone's in it so briefly because it is this anthology there's not a ton of like you know there was a a big thing about like oh elizabeth moss is in it she has maybe like three lines wow you know um it's all just so brief um that you can't really zoom in on one performance and kind of savor it i would say probably mcdormand and wright are the the two most and chalamet after that I was just trying to look up if this is Jeffrey Wright's first Wes Anderson movie. I think it is. He seems like such a good fit for this world. Like he can he has that like that theatrical presentation, like you're saying, with the theater background that seems like he would fit in really well. Yeah, he likes to kind of over egg it a little bit, too. And so does Anderson. And, and that and that fits well. I think the same is true for McDormand. But when you have actors who like Chalamet is a little more natural, even though he is a theater kid. Uh, and so it, it just feels a little bit more like a performance rather than in McDormand and Wright's case, they're kind of collaborators in this Wes Anderson project. Yeah. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again at an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, tell me about some stuff that you really loved, because I do think you've had you've had a lot of standout films uh, in since we last talked. Yeah, I mean, my absolute favorite film thus far in the festival, I have a few days left, so my, my head could turn toward Aileen or something. <laughs> um, but I, I love this Norwegian film from Joachim Trier uh, called The Worst Person in the World, which is a very, you know, stylishly made um, very smartly written, but still very accessible. I mean, save for the fact that it's in Norwegian, that might put some people off. Um, it's kind of a romantic comedy with some drama in it that follows a woman as she turns 30 and then kind of into her 30s. It's sort of being billed as like a Norwegian Francis Ha. Mm-hmm. And I see that comparison, but I think that this movie has a bit even more on its mind in terms of like existential stuff than Francis Ha does. It is partly about a woman who is really, really uncertain, kind of leaning towards no about whether she wants to have kids at all um, and how that kind of comes to inform her relationships and her relationships with with men and also with friends and just how she kind of views her position in the world as a 30-something um, who is just kind of not sure she wants to settle down, quote-unquote, in the traditional way, um, which might sound kind of general for a, a topic, um, but Trier you know, makes real specific characters. The writing is really uh, well observed and detailed and the lead performer, um, I'm not going to butcher her name, Renata something, sorry. Um, (laughs) She's like really excellent. You know, I would hope that the jury led by Spike Lee are looking at her for a potential best actress award here, which would mean the film couldn't win anything else because everything can only win one usually. Oh, right. Yeah. um, But yeah, so I just, I was so taken with it. I really like... It's been kind of in my head for the days since I've seen it. And I really can't say that about a ton else here, even Mm -hmm. though I have seen a lot of interesting, you know, otherwise good things. You've seen a lot of stuff that's like uh, thoughtful or well-made, but didn't like grab you. Yeah, I think it just has to, you know, as something I wrote about in my review of The Worst Person in the World, it just like it hit me kind of square in the chest as someone who is almost done with their 30s uh, and has been thought a lot about like family and children and all that. And um, to see a movie that it kind of turns toward me and people like me and says, hey, let's talk. You know, I think that feels really nice. You know, yeah. so I guess I do have a certain bias, but that's all. You know, everything is biased, ultimately. I wanted to ask about the other movie that seems to be grabbing people the most, which is Bergman Island. And you tweeted about the uh, the high quality clothes. And Vicky Creeps is one of those people who, like, looks oh, yeah. good and effortless and, like, so European and chic wearing anything. Um, I have loved watching what she's wearing at Cannes itself. Uh, but <laughs> what's up with Bergman Island other than the clothes? Well, Bergman Island's interesting because it's one of several films here that is really like kind of meta textual about the director. Like you had the souvenir part two, which we mm-hmm. talked about last week. Um, we have the Nadav Lapid film from Israel, uh, Ahed's knee that is kind of start, you know, the, the lead character is a filmmaker who is essentially Lapid. Um, and then in Bergman Island's case, uh, you have, uh, Vicky creeps playing. I pretty much a version of Mia Hansen love who wrote and directed the film. So it's kind of an interesting glimpse into her, I guess, writing process uh, because it's a story within a story. It's about a filmmaking couple. So it's maybe about Mia Hansen Love and Olivia Sayas, I don't know, but uh, who go to, you know, f- I'm not going to pronounce it correctly in Swedish, but Faroe Island where Bergman lived uh, to work on separate projects. And as she's working, we start to see that movie actually take shape um, Hmm. in the form of Mia Vazikovska. So it's a kind of a double narrative. It's very... I mean, slight isn't the right word, but it, it's not heavy on plot. You know, it's kind of just more of a mood movie that where, while Mia Hansen Love kind of noodles about like 
what it means to create and how things kind of take shape and who influences it and where you are, how that influences your writing. Um, so it's a little sort of like script writer's journal kind of thing. It's a really interesting movie. Um, but I think it doesn't have the sort of emotional wallop of some of Hanson Love's previous films, like Things mm-hmm. to Come or Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, but the clothes are really great. <laughs> in also, a very I mean, simple way. Has Vicky Creeps not been in anything since... Um, Phantom Thread. Phantom yeah. Thread, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's been in a few things, and she also has the Shyamalan movie that's opening this week. Oh, right. Um, old. S- old, yeah. So it's a big summer for old Vicky Creeps. Um, <laughs> and and she's, she's such a kind of... She has that same sort of slightly offbeat uh, ethereal presence in this as she did in in Phantom Thread and she's you know paired with Tim Roth uh and then there are a bunch of Swedish actors and Mia Vazakowska and uh there's a guy in it who in the kind of movie within a movie uh section named Anders Danielson Lee who is also one of the love interests in The Worst Person in the World and he's oh. this very handsome Norwegian actor who is also like, apparently in real life a doctor He's Ooh. a full doctor and just like acts on the side, kind of. Wow! All um, these Nordic superstars crossovers. Yeah, yeah. So it was it's fun to see him. I like when little patterns like that emerge throughout a film festival, and that's definitely happening in certain cases in Cannes. I do have to say, we had the discussion about the famous scene, now famous scene in uh, Annette. Uh, the sex scene Uh, Mm -hmm. that particular sexual act has repeated in at least three movies that I've seen here (laughs) so that seems to be in the air (laughs) yeah but yeah, so Bourbon Island, um, I think it's, yeah, again, interesting mood piece, but I would, I saw some people who are not at the festival getting very excited based on the reactions. And I would tell if any of those people are listening, temper your expectations some. Go go in just planning to have a sort of two hour mellow meditative sort of thing set in a beautiful place um, because it's not, unfortunately, too much more than that, I don't think. That does seem to be kind of a theme emerging from a lot of these titles, honestly. Like there, there, people are getting a lot out of many of these, but there's, you know, Parasite's too high a bar to clear. But like there's no runaway being like, oh, my God, this is the one. Like the Souvenir Part 2 seems the closest, maybe? Yeah, I, I would say the Souvenir Part 2 is up there. There's a Japanese film that I missed that's an adaptation of a Marukami story called Drive My Car that is apparently quite good. Um, it's three hours long, but I, I and yes, people, but I think that's also maybe a little bit like on the quieter side. You know, we still have Red Rocket coming up. I'm, yeah. you know, there there are a few kind of bigger type. Oh, the um the movie from Julia Ducournau who did Raw. She her movie Titane is is premiering tonight as we speak. You and I. Um, so there, yeah. I, I so it's hard to get a read on like what the big films are in competition. Well, there's the um the one from um a Pitchapong where Theracol, uh, which. I think, yeah. we, you know, we expect to be arty and inaccessible on some level, but could get all the critics very excited. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's coming in a couple of days. But yeah. And, and, you know, out of competition, I was really surprised by how much I liked Stillwater, the Tom McCarthy movie yeah. with Matt Damon. Um, I went in thinking it was going to be kind of what the ads were, which is like a good old boy, fish out of water, kind of straightforward, you know, ripped from the headlines about Amanda Knox kind of movie. And that is in there. But McCarthy, I think, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm inferring too much out of the film, but I think has a lot more on his mind. And I think in some senses, a lot of Stillwater, which keeps shifting in tone from drama to kind of a weird romance to, uh, you know, sort of a thriller. I think there's something kind of allegorical at work in the movie. And it's maybe saying something a bit bigger about American adventurism abroad and, and how, you know, decisions that are supposedly well-intentioned for the betterment of the world can have kind of catastrophic consequences for people. So I'm choosing to think that Stillwater is a lot deeper than it kind of lets on. But even if it's not, uh, I still think it's a surprisingly solid kind of melodrama that unfolds over a long runtime and really feels like you kind of read a novel at the end of it. I was very surprised by how much I was into it. Yeah, I feel like that's true of so many of Tom McCarthy's really good movies. You know, that it's like it feels very straightforward. You know, Win Win is like about a high school wrestling coach, but like there's so much depth and he just pays attention to the people within his stories with this empathy that I think makes them always stand out. And Stillwater seems really ripe for that kind of treatment, like just being with these people and letting the story unfold around them. 
Yeah, it's so funny that I was thinking about it as I wrote the review. It's like, wait, why was I surprised that a Tom McCarthy movie was good? <laughs> like, he, yes, yes, he did make the cobbler, he but like most cobbler. of the other movies are really good. So yeah. like, this should not be a shock at all. And yet, no. there it was. I will say that there is a movie that's out now that Matt Damon is in that you might not know that Matt Damon is in. And I watched it recently and was so delighted to see him. And having read your Soulwater review and then looking toward the last duel, like I'm excited for this year of Matt Damon we might have ahead of us. Like it's unclear if Stillwater will be like an Oscar vehicle, especially with the last duel coming but uh, I feel I feel glad to see him doing such a variety of work right now yeah I mean Stillwater I think will do you know I don't know how much money it's going to make it's you know it's an interesting for a studio release Universal's putting it out even though it's kind of more a focused features movie you know so it has a high profile I don't think he'll get a lot of like I don't think he'll get dinged for it you know I think it could only help this narrative uh, that seems to be shaping up around him this year yeah um, well, so Red Rocket, you mentioned, there's the Sean Baker movie uh, that's still coming. There's a Joseph yeah. Kurtzel movie that's coming in a couple of days. Anything else to, to flag for people that uh, is coming up? Well, I mentioned it in passing, but Aileen, uh, as we oh, record this, goodness. I'm seeing it in a few hours. And if people don't remember from last week, that is the movie about Celine Dion that's not really technically about Celine Dion, but they're using her music. Um, and the actress playing Dion or, or Aileen um, who also directed the film and is, I think, in her late 50s and yet apparently will be playing her as a young woman. The trailer um, suggests as much, yes. And I think there's some, like, you know, Michael Douglas and Ant-Man de-aging going on there. Um, but it's, it's, it's still quite a quite a gambit. So this is a, this is a French film, right? Or is it French-Canadian, like like Celine? It's a f- I think it's a co-production, but it's really being positioned here as a very French film. The, the writer, director, and star is a French, French. woman. Uh, you know, it's this kind of funny thing because it's only screening a couple times. You know, Cannes doesn't screen its stuff a lot, but like usually there's more than like two things. Um, and, you know, me and a colleague, we tried to get tickets to the premiere and we had to like track down this French publicist email address and got a very curt no back. So this is a very like for France, by France kind of thing. <laughs> and they don't really seem to interested in any American uh, or any otherwise perspectives on the film. But there were, t- they, we, we happened to snag uh, access to the press screening. So um, I hope it's not just a standard boring you know, music biopic, which is one of my least favorite genres. I hope there's something else there. If nothing else, though, we'll get to hear some good Celine Dion songs. That's always fun. Um, I have one last question for you. Last week, we talked a lot about the logistics about, you know, spitting into a tube and the the website not functioning. Has that gotten any better? Has it started to feel more like a regular can? I'm assuming that the head, you know, the people who run can listen to this very yes. podcast yeah. because no sooner did our episode drop last week than the, the, the website magically started working really well. And I'll tell you this, like there are a couple things I don't like about it in that like it kind of limits how much um, improv you can do. You know, uh, uh, as you well know, Katie, like a, one of the joys of film festivals is you'd be like, oh, I have a couple hours to fill. What's on the schedule? And yeah, you can yeah, just yeah. hop into a screening. That can't really be done when you have to request tickets ahead of time. But it also reduces the stress of waiting in lines and all that. So once the website started working, I actually became sort of a reluctant fan of the new system. Mm. Um, so that's been okay. The testing is really swift. You know, I got a test this morning and three and a half hours later, I got my results. And so that's all moving well. I have heard rumblings that the festival directors are in constant conversation with the can government, the local government and the, the federal government here because they want to kind of tighten restrictions on all of France. And that would maybe involve shutting the festival down early. Uh, that might just be a, that might just be a rumor that I've heard on the wind and isn't actually true. But I think, you know, I certainly haven't heard about anyone going to the little testing tent and then a few hours later getting a positive result. But I kind of don't think I would if that, if that had happened. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, Leia Sadu, the actress who's in a few films here, couldn't come because of a positive test. Um, clearly, the virus is out there. Um, I haven't heard anything about it, its effect on the festival or the festival's effect on it, the rest of the city here. But I'm sure it's there somewhere creeping. You know that uh, in 1968, Cannes was shut down midway through because of the uh, the student protests that were going on in Paris. So it is not unprecedented for Cannes to yeah. shut down early. So we'll see. And is, aren't the 1968 protests part of the um, Wes Anderson movie? So it's all connected. They are hand- handled very flippantly and annoyingly <laughs> by Mr. Wes Anderson. <laughs> Um, Well, Richard, we'll have you back. Uh, You're going on vacation next week. Uh, We'll have you back at some point to uh, talk about all the the palm winners and everything else that happens. But in the meantime, uh, I don't know, stay cool. Don't don't swelter too much in the July French heat. 
Yeah, and if you hear a sort of piercing shriek kind of echoing across the Atlantic, uh, it means that I think Simon Rex is going to win an Oscar. Oh, so just, yeah. just keep keep an ear out for that. Yeah, we might, we might have an emergency break into our Emmys <laughs> yeah. uh, reaction episode for you to just weigh in on that, please. Uh, I will call from vacation if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> I will be glad to have it. Uh, that does it for this week's show. You can read our Emmy coverage on VF.com as we record this. We're still frantically writing a lot of it, so there will be lots to see. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe this. And David. David Canfield 97. And Richard is at Rylaws. You can also sign up to text us at joinsubtext.com slash Little Gold Men or text 718-550-2059. We love hearing from you. Uh, this week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for what we hope Richard is doing immediately after filing his can dispatch goes to Joanna Robinson. Splashing around in a vat of wine. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.